The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its hosts are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and as I like to remind you, each and every week I'm also the author of a newsletter called Jay Taylor's Gold, Energy, and Tech Stocks, and my company, Taylor Hard Money Advisors, is in partnership with Chen Lin, who publishes What is Chen Buying, What is Chen Selling. With regard to Chen's newsletter, you do need to put your name on a waiting list, so go to miningstocks.com, miningstocks.com, put your name on a waiting list to sign up for Chen's letter, uh, and that will be available only during the first of a couple of weeks of the new calendar quarter. Uh, you can sign up for my newsletter at any time at miningstocks.com. I want to thank each of you for listening to this show, and I would like to encourage you to keep sending along your questions, comments, criticisms, praises, what have you. Send it to questions4taylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. We also want to thank our sponsors for making this show economically viable. Our sponsors for today's show are Novo Resources, Dynacor Gold Mines, and Copper Bank Resources Corp. And we will be talking to the CEO of Copper Bank Resources uh, in a little while, uh, in fact, in about 12 or 15 minutes or so from now. I've titled today's show, Can America Continue to Dominate Asia in Quest of a New World Order? And uh, Gianni uh, um, Kovacek, Kovacek uh, he's the CEO of Copper Bank Resources. He'll be with me for the first time, uh, as, as I said, in just a couple of minutes. And we are really pleased to have Michael Oliver with me once again to get his latest views on the precious metals markets on a day in which the gold price was hit very, very hard, I don't know, 35 bucks or so on the downside. And so we want to get his view on what's happening in gold and some of the other major markets that we follow. Uh, Gianni will uh, be with me, as I say, in just a couple of minutes. Uh, after our first commercial break, he'll be with me. We're going to talk about his very unique way to hold an option on copper. Well, that's at a time when almost nobody wants copper, but you know the old saying, buy them when no one else wants them. Well, that's what Gianni is seeking to do. He's looking to buy copper projects that uh, he believes, uh, not only he believes, but past work has revealed considerable value. However, 
uh, unless you can get something out of the ground at a profit, uh, that, that doesn't really hold too much value. So the idea that Johnny has, I believe, and we'll uh, question him more about it, is that once you start to see copper prices rising above that break-even point, then you can make a lot of money uh, once those options go in the money, so to speak. It's, it's like buying a call option on copper is what he's trying to do, and he's providing a way for you to do that through his public vehicle, uh, Copper Bank. Uh, then at about half past the hour, Stephen Harner will be uh, with me. He'll be here for a second time on today's show. Stephen is the president of Yangtze Century Limited in Shanghai and is a principal with 30 years of experience. Stephen provides real investment advisory and management consulting services, a lot of great insights into the geopolitics and economics of Japan and China and elsewhere in Asia. And there are some really interesting things taking place these days with respect to China and uh, U.S.-Chinese relations, not to mention uh, Chinese and Russian relations. So we're going to want to talk to Stephen about some of those issues as well. And as I just mentioned, Michael Oliver uh, is also with me right now uh, to help us get a sense of what's going on in the gold markets and other markets uh, that we hold uh, as being very important. Thanks for joining me again, Mike, uh, Michael. Uh, glad to be here, Jake. Really good to talk to you always. Uh, what do you make of this bombing on today's gold market? I mean, it's really it's just almost like a waterfalls event, it seems. Well, it's, uh, it's actually it's been several weeks of downside. It, it, it's fairly even pace with a bad day here and a bad day there, and today's another, quote, bad day. Um, the pullback, first off, in the context, the bigger context, uh, gold went through a bottoming process, in my view, in mid-2013 through most of 2014, the lower end being uh, 1180 price level. Mm-hmm. But then in November of 2014, it bombed out that low and went to 1140, which is like a couple percent below the old lows, mm-hmm. said boo, and immediately turned back up. Yeah. So it turned out that quote, breakout below the obvious 1180 low was, in my view, probably a bear trap. Mm-hmm. were probably the bottom of the market. Mm-hmm. Subsequent to the November low between then and January, gold went through layer after layer of things that I thought would signal upside. When it crossed each layer, it would get a burst, $50 here, $80 there. Finally got up to 1308 I think was the high price about three four weeks ago. We're now back down to 1203 today. Mm-hmm. I think it's about 1208 last last I saw. Now, <clears throat> I'm looking at most of my momentum work and trying to discern uh, – where support is on this pullback, and I think it is right about here, uh, beginning at about 12.03, which is the three-month average, coincidentally, mm-hmm. uh, uh, on down to about uh, the very upper 1190s. Mm-hmm. That's a zone where I would be very observant for a turn or a level that needs to hold, probably. Mm-hmm. Um, the final, the, the overall context of whether gold is now a bull or not has not been established. Uh, mm-hmm. I think about, I'd call it 60-70% of the evidence I think came in from that November low through the January high on the positive side. Mm-hmm. But the one remaining hurdle or breakout level was that level at 1300. I wanted mm-hmm. to see a weekly close uh, above there, not just a poking out above there, but a, but a solid close. I've got uh, various reasons for that, uh, price-based and especially momentum-based. So that's the final hurdle. Now, we've now had a $100 pullback from that hurdle. The mm-hmm. question is whether we're failing or is this just a pullback before you ram that, that barrier one more time. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and I think we have to watch it. I think these lows here are important. If we get a turn now, I would say even up back up into the 1220s, probably you're safe. It's probable mm-hmm. that the low has occurred uh, in this secondary pullback. Uh, so it's something that has to be watched. Uh, mm-hmm. 
uh, you don't ever have a, a cocky attitude that you know you got the bottom in. No. It, it's always in layers that you establish those pieces of evidence. Mm-hmm. Little by little. Well, mm-hmm. tell me, Michael, do you have a time uh, idea? Do you have a time parameter on this? Uh, do we need to see gold reaching above 1300 yeah. over a certain period of time? I or? would say that if, it, if it's going to happen in, in a dynamic situation, which gold is still moving dynamically within its base over the last two years and also since the November low, uh, that if it's going to occur, it should occur by the second quarter, mm-hmm. probably early in the second quarter. Otherwise, if you stall too long, even assuming you don't go back to the lows and you just stall, that's not a real good sign. Yeah. Uh, you need to keep the dynamics, the, the, the fisticuffs need to keep going on. And I think that's, that would be a positive thing. So I don't view the sell-off as negative. It is down toward what I think is support. But I need to see some modicum of evidence that it's turning up from this support. And I think a pop back over 1220 right now uh, in the next day or week or so would be evidence of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know if you're, if you're prepared to talk about silver, but are you, uh, how does silver look to you? Any better, any worse? It should outperform gold if we turn up in gold fully. Uh-huh. Gold actually crosses the 1,300 hurdle. I'm about 80 90% convinced that the better place to be this time around will be gold mining stocks, silver mm-hmm. mining stocks, and silver, not gold itself. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I use gold as my, you know, it's, it's the big daddy. And, and so what he does sets the tone and the direction. <laughs> but that doesn't mean he's going to be the leader on a percentage basis. Right. And this time around, I do think... Uh, you use gold as your, your measure, and just assume silver will follow and lead at some point. Uh, in fact, a week or so ago, silver had, a, silver had quite nice up week. I think it was about a half a dollar when gold had a flat week. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was a, a bit of a shift there. Mm-hmm. But, uh, again, it's, this, we're in a flux situation. I think it's a bottom in gold, uh, but I need that bit more evidence. I need to see support around here and an upturn, and then mm-hmm. quickly get back over 1,300 in the ensuing weeks or a few months. Wow. Well, it's, it's good to hear you as one who has a vested interest in gold mining shares. It's good to hear uh, you a bit more bullish even on the shares than on, the, on, on gold itself. But uh, switching gears a little bit, Michael, if we could, what, about, what are you seeing in the equity markets, the S&P 500, for example? Well, the, uh, it's very interesting. I, I'm not, I use point-and-figure charts sometimes in my work, mm-hmm. but I, I plot momentum in point-and-figure format. And if your readers aren't familiar with that, listeners aren't familiar, go online and, and look it up, and you'll see what I mean. It's X's and O's to plot the structure, the, the up and down in price or in, in momentum. And the action we're getting in the S&P right now on a price basis, uh, as you know, I'm negative for momentum reasons, but just on mm-hmm. a price basis, is virtually identical upside down, though, of the way the market bottomed in 2011. Remember in 2011, we dropped from the Bin Laden high at 1370 on the S&P. Dropped quickly in August, most of it was in August, down to just above 1100, Mm -hmm. almost a mini crash. August through September, two months, was volatile sideways action where each side was a winner every other week. But it didn't go anywhere. It was just up, down, up, down, up, down, very violent. Uh-huh. Well, that's exactly what the S&P has done since, oh, September, October period, uh, after the October low. Once we made that low and turned up, the action turned violent and mostly sideways. Hmm. And we had, um, this is particularly true on the NASDAQ 100. You can see it jumps off the page if you look at a price chart of it. Well, now you've come up and taken out the high. Well, back in October of 2011, there was a flat floor between the August and the September lows just above 1100. In early October, they drove it down to about 1070. So they took out the lows in a decisive manner, 
And on a point-and-figure basis, it was a multiple-bottom breakout where it looked like, oh, golly, this congestion zone is resolving to the downside. Mm -hmm. Well, you can flip that over now. We're doing exactly the same thing in reverse. Mm. By reaching 2100 today, you've taken out the prior highs to the left, and it looks like a breakout. So in my weekend report, I caution readers, you know, watch the price action. Mm -hmm. Because if you abort back down into the prior range, Mm -hmm. I would say, for example, a daily close at any time in the future – at 2060 or lower in the S&P is a signal that the, quote, breakout that we're seeing here uh, is stillborn and is aborting. Wow. And, and, and that is a negative event in and of itself. Wow. Well, nobody said it would be easy in these markets, Michael. Yeah. And, and there you, it's a great example of the bear, uh, if, if that's what we're turning into, the bear trying to get as many victims into his den as he possibly can, right? Absolutely, yes. And, uh, and never I had a friend in Chicago, Merck Trader, said one of his favorite sayings was, no, uh, no market ever made a top looking bad. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. One more thing I'd like to ask you about before we have to conclude our discussion today, and that has to do uh, with the risk-on, risk-off uh, trade, and in particular as it pertains to the bonds of the, deck mar- of the debt markets. What are you seeing there? Well, I'm seeing something unusual. For the last year, we've seen the low-risk, low low-yield beat handily the high-yield, yep. such that high-yield uh, yields went up, not a lot, but up, and the low-yields went down, prices went up. So things like the TLT or the 30-year bond or the 10-year note uh, advanced nicely with yields dropping, while the high-yield market was in trouble. Mm-hmm. That uh, I'm not so focused on the spread right now as I am actually on the German Bund, which is their 10-year instrument, and our T-note, which is a 10-year instrument. I watch mm-hmm. the futures in both. And they're doing something that is, uh, it got me all itchy. It's, I can't quite explain why, but they look like they're topping. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I've, I've got some short-term indicators that say uh, you drop a little bit more this week and they're topping on a short-term or a trading basis. But the problem is that the proximity of where we are now to some numbers that would break them on a longer-term basis is not that far. So mm. if they stumble, they could fall. Now, what that implies is there's a potential spike in rates. And I don't mean high yield. I'm talking the safe stuff. The mm-hmm. question is why. What eventuality, what set of circumstances could explain this? Mm-hmm. And one can speculate, and that's not what I do. I measure. No. I'm a technician. But I am seeing that shaping up out there, and that is an event that if it occurs, is will ambush a lot of people because I don't think anybody's eyes are focused on the potential for the safe 10-year debt U.S. and German, which is considered, you know, the safest in the world. You don't get a yield, but it isn't going to hurt you. Mm-hmm. I see the potential for it to hurt you. Wow. Uh, and therefore, I'm measuring, and if I get the signals, I will announce it. Uh, but it, it's looking like it, it wants to go that way. And again, that, that would be an upsetting factor for other markets, I'm sure. Oh, my goodness, would it ever be? And, you know, I don't know how many times uh, good friends of, of mine and myself, too, have thought, goodness, this is the end of the bull market in U.S. Treasuries. Uh, only to find rates go to historical lows and just keep going lower and lower. As more money was printed and created, it, it created the uh, the buying, obviously, for those debt instruments when the risk was on. And uh, it, it is fascinating, Michael. It, it, what you're telling us here is I'm, I'm sure there's not too many people seeing what, what you're seeing, so uh, it's going to be fascinating to see how this plays out. I'll really be looking forward to it. And I would tell my listeners, if you want to keep up with what Michael's doing, especially in credit, uh, accredited investors, I would really urge you to check out Michael's work. It's OliverMSA.com. Oliver, M is in Mary, S is in Sam, A is in Albert. OliverMSA.com. 
uh, and uh, you know, check out Michael's work because I'm finding it to be very, very. Not only is it interesting, Michael provides a lot of color uh, along with the technicals, and you know, a lot of technical analysts are sort of boring. Michael, I find, is uh, provides some interesting, uh, some interesting verbiage to go along with it. Uh, thanks again, Michael, for uh, passing that along to our listeners today. It's really fascinating stuff. You know, uh, what I do appreciate about technical analysis, and I'm not a technical analyst, but the idea is removing the, the emotions and, the, uh, and remaining objective, letting the markets speak. Let the markets do the talking rather than, uh, rather than trying to figure it out yourself, right? Isn't it the collective wisdom of markets that you're trying to discern from the patterns you see, Michael? That's correct, yes. Yeah. Uh, I, I do a lot of the work in, in, instead of price analysis, which is the normal uh, version of what you think of as technical analysis. I detrend price and analyze the momentum of price. That's my primary uh, arena. And usually momentum will shift before price does, and therefore to the extent that I can call something, usually it will call it before price makes it clear. And that's, mm-hmm. that's purpose. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, thank you so much, Michael. We're out of time, but I look forward to doing it again, hopefully next week, if you're available. Thank you so much. I am. Thank you, Jay. Bye. Okay, take care. Well, folks, don't go away, because we're going to be right back. Uh, we're going to be talking to a very interesting uh, person uh, for the first time, Gianni uh, Kovac- Kovacevic, uh, and he is, uh, has a very interesting company uh, that you're going to want to learn more about. Uh, if you're interested in copper and buying options, very low-priced options, uh, or a, buying a low-priced option on copper. Unless you believe the world is coming to an end, copper certainly, uh, the world needs a lot of it. And so at uh, a time like this, it might be a good time to take a look. Well, we're going to listen to what uh, Gianni has to tell us as soon as we come back from the break. So don't go away. We'll be right back. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Novo Resources Corporation, trading symbols NSRPF on the OTCQX and NVO on the Canadian Securities Exchange, is an advanced junior mining exploration company whose highly prospective assets are located in the Hammersley Basin of Western Australia. Novo's flagship asset, its Beaton's Creek Project, has an NI43101 compliant resource of 420,000 ounces at a grade of 1.5 grams per ton. With $10 million in cash and strong shareholder support from Newmont Mining, Novo looks to complete a feasibility study in the first quarter of 2015. The latest business information is made simple with the Voice America Business Network. The professionals in the business world bring you live talk radio shows featuring an array of business topics, strategies for building wealth, sales and marketing, stock trading, investing, and business technology. Voice America business hosts are professionals in their fields and bring to the airwaves weekly business discussions that offer up-to-date information, advice, and education. The Voice America Business Network. The bottom line in business talk. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now. Toll free. 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You're 
listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really glad to have with me for the first time Gianni Kovacek. Uh, Gianni is a Canadian creation investor in natural resources uh, and an established author. Uh, he's written a very interesting book uh, that I uh, have in front of me here that's uh, it's, it's got, I think, one of the most interesting and uh, uh, the titles, My Electrician Drives a Porsche. I don't know, I don't know many people who drive Porsches at all, uh, and I don't know of any electricians who drive Porsches, so it's, it's a very interesting, uh, curious title. So we want to talk to Gianni about that, but we also want to ask him about his uh, Copper Bank. Uh, it is a sponsor of this show. It trades in Canada under the symbol CBK. Uh, traded uh, very low price, around four or five cents. It also trades in Frankfurt as well, 134 million shares outstanding. So it is a market cap of only around $5 million. But I think it's a very interesting concept. You know what they say, uh, buy them when no one else wants them. And uh, the great investors usually find a way to, to find value, to buy value at, uh, at prices that are unbelievably low, at least when you look back in time, uh, that turns out to be the case. And uh, so uh, I want to thank you, Gianni, for joining me today. Yeah, thanks for having me, Jay. It's really interesting. Uh, you know, as I say, I don't know. Uh, I don't know that many people. I don't travel in those circles. I'm a pretty middle class guy myself. But uh, people that drive Porsches, I don't know many. But I can't imagine too many electricians being able to drive Porsches. So I want to ask. It's a curious title for your book. But tell us first of all, before we get to that, why did you create Copper Bank, and and tell us how you plan to profit from it. Yeah, that's a, a good question, Jay. And a Copper Bank was created uh, by myself and a group of investors who have uh, traditionally uh, supported copper exploration companies. Uh, we all know that uh, exploration is not being rewarded in this market. Uh, furthermore, you're, you're able to buy research and drilling at pennies on the dollar. So why even bother going and doing the work when you can mm-hmm. just buy it? It's already done. And people have done high-quality work. There's the results. So what we're doing with Copper Bank is we are creating a transactional depository of high-quality copper projects, just as the name implies. Mm-hmm. And this is a project that uh, was financed by me and my group. Uh, this was not a, a broadly, you know, something that was broadcast to the street. So it was a, a few people that put significant amounts of capital together. We raised $1.6 million for the idea, um, which is kind of a medium number simply because we don't spend money per se. We're not undertaking any work commitments. We have no staff. We have no office. Mm -hmm. All we're doing is purchasing projects that are 100% owned or are optioned for 100% that simply require people to, um, you know, hold them in these bad markets. And Mm -hmm. that's what we're doing. uh, We currently have two projects, and we are going to be aggressively... Um, analyzing and hoping to acquire more projects in 2015 and beyond until the market turns. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, in, in some ways, then, you're probably not eager for a turn-up if, uh, 
if uh, the longer the copper price stays depressed, uh, the more opportunities there probably will be, right? That's exactly correct. So for the, the company does have assets right now, and our, our flagship project is uh, called Contact. It's in Nevada. We own it 100%, and this project is at the PFS level. So there's a high level of confidence on the work that's already been done there, and there is a net present value that people can associate with the project. Mm-hmm. So just to, just to highlight the value in Copper Bank, when we did the IPO at $0.10 cents a share, it implied a market cap of $13 million, and we were one of the cheapest copper companies um, listed in Canada, and, you know, just on, on a pounds-in-the-ground basis. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have to be careful on how you classify these things because we have reserves, resources measured, indicated, and inferred. But if you were to, in all category pounds in the ground, we, we IPO'd at one-third of one penny per pound in the ground. <sighs> so with the, with the share price now trading around uh, four or five cents, Remember, we're supporting the company. We insiders are buying almost every share at this level. So I encourage mm-hmm. people to look at the insider filings, and we're effectively in these bad markets buying, you know, tired, worn-out shareholders that mm-hmm. were uh, always a seller, and uh, you know, they, they, the, the price is uh, trading here around four or five cents to um, uh, make that exchange take place. So mm-hmm. with, with at this level, the market cap is around six. Six million dollars, five or six million dollars. Mm-hmm. Companies trading around one tenth of one penny per pound in the ground. Mm-hmm. So, you know, just a tremendous value, lots of upside, and with assets that you know. To just to reiterate, our you know contact in particular, hundred percent owned. So the company is always anchored by that flagship asset. And if we look, when the markets were healthier, the transactions that took place in the copper space, as you know happened between, you know, three and ten cents a pound in the ground, you know, mm-hmm. depending on a lot of variables, infrastructure and jurisdiction, so on and so forth. So we're trading at one-tenth of one penny. So you, you, you can see where the disconnect is, and that's what we're buying, and that's what we're going to continue to buy. That Copper Bank wants to be a, uh, a warehouse of other projects, and there's things certainly in our crosshairs, and we'd like to say that the projects that we're looking for are places that we would be comfortable sending our children to go work at. So we're not going to go anywhere too exotic. We're going to we're going to stick to our knitting. Uh, we are located in Vancouver, Canada, and so I think uh, you know British Columbia and the and the, and the traditional sort of uh, copper areas are, are are within our crosshairs. Yeah. Uh, so you are also you have a project in uh, in uh, in Alaska, I believe, called the Pyramid. And also another one, the yep. San Diego Bay project. I guess they're not as far along as your uh, contact property. No, that's correct. Those are um, Pyramid, which is located on the Aleutian Islands in Alaska, uh, near Tidewater, and it's on private land. So it mm. does not have the sensitivities that Pebble has um, closer to the mainland. And Pyramid was drilled off by Anofagasta. Uh, oh, sure. Two passes of drilling in, in 2011 and 2012. Uh, very successful drilling. We have an initial inferred resource of around 190 million tons, and this this is still open in almost every direction. So uh-huh. it's something that is interesting. Is it a uh, you know is sort of a somewhat de-risked project? Mm-hmm. Or in better markets, we can uh, we can look to either further do the drilling ourselves if we can do a creative financings, or probably more likely we would joint venture that project and then. Um, we paid $2.4 million for Pyramid, and there was you know, around $8 million worth of drilling that took place there. So we bought yeah. the drilling at a discount. 
Sure. And then we've even got the, uh, the San Diego project, which is about seven kilometers east of, of Pyramid, which is a Tier 1 prospect. This is um, what Rob McLeod, our, our chief geologist, says, the largest anomaly he's ever seen, 60 square kilometers. So mm-hmm. it's something that would be uh, suitable for a major mining company, and we do have people taking a look at San Diego, and, and that clearly would not be uh, capital out of our treasury. We would be looking to use a, like a, a traditional joint venture model, other people's money to, to move that project along, but we don't rely on that. Right, sure. Well, let me. I, I believe that your your pyramid prospect also has copper, has uh, Mali and gold, some Mali and gold credits there as well, probably, right? Yeah, that's correct. Yeah, it's a bit, yeah. probably heavier in Mali than it is gold. Uh, but we we do look at the assets, um, you know, in, in the stable that they are predominantly copper. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are pro- there are some things that we're looking at that may have a heavier gold kicker, but um, uh, certainly it's a um, as the name suggests for people. Um, and as I like to say, anyone that ever bought uh, into this space and, and understands the value creation that can, that can take place, if those people um, understand values, they want to look at, um, go to our website at copperbankcorp.com. They can download our presentation. And right in the beginning, on uh, I believe it's page three, I have a pictorial of, uh, of three gears. So Copper Bank is geared for maximum optionality, to, copper, to move in the copper price on a per pound basis. Mm-hmm. And it has our five principles in the company. And I'll just list them for you really, clo- really, uh, sure. really quickly here. We have a very low burn rate. We built this company for ourselves. We are true owner-operators. We benefit when the shareholder benefits. We are entirely aligned with our shareholders. When we raised our capital, it was our money, mm-hmm. and we set the warrant. There's a full warrant associated with that financing. Remember, it was a $0.10 cent per share financing. We set the warrant at $0.50 cents a share. That's where we see the value here. Mm-hmm. And, and when you look at it um, with the current valuation, as I've uh, mentioned a couple times, trading at you know, um, you know, around a tenth of a penny per pound on the ground, you can see where this, what we say, you know, massive optionality to, to copper prices uh, on, a, on a pounds in the ground basis. And then... We want to offer people a diversified multi-asset base. You know, we have projects at various levels of, uh, of de-risking, uh, contact at the PFS level, the pre-feasibility level, that is, mm-hmm. pyramid, which has an inferred resource, San Diego's a prospect, and we are actively looking for, for more projects to put in, our, our, uh, in the bank you know, mm-hmm. for this you know, very accretive model that we have. Whether we have three projects or five or six, our low-cost model, it doesn't change. You know, it's, it, it, our, our team can manage these assets because we are not doing any work programs at this time. And right. most importantly, uh, John, let me ask you, uh, how far are you prepared to take these projects yourself? I mean, you mentioned uh, in, um, uh, you know, in, in your second Alaskan project there, uh, the San Diego, that you probably bring in a joint venture partner. That's an earlier stage prospect. But uh, is it? Uh, are you going to be a prospect generator, project generator model, prospect generator model, or how far will you take it yourself? That's one question. And secondly, how much money do you have in the bank now, and how far will that take you? I know you have a very low burn rate, but how far? Uh, how soon will you need to raise some more money? Yeah. So two good, two very good questions. The first question is yes, we want to have a generative aspect to the company, mm-hmm. and that's done through demonstration. So we we have that opportunity now. Uh, we're working at creating that the value for our shareholders, and so yes, we would have you know, truly a transactional depository 
of, co- of established copper projects. So we would ho- hold projects that are further advanced, and we would look to have that generative component to the projects that um, are prospective, but they, they don't quite have the, the results maybe that some of our other projects have. Mm-hmm. Your second question was cash position. Remember, we raised $1.6 million because it was the capital we needed for a two-year runway. Mm-hmm. So the capital that we have right now will last us until approximately the middle of 2016. So mm-hmm. uh, to answer it specifically, we have around $600,000, but most of our 2015 costs are already sunk. Mm-hmm. That, that, that's already sunk costs. Mm-hmm. So this, the cash that we have will, will last. And remember, this is capital that we are very mindful of dilution. Uh, the company does have, uh, it has 130 million shares outstanding, uh, trading around um, 4 or 5 cents. And, and this share count is something that we, we do want this to be a proxy on copper prices. We want this stock to trade. And branding this and, and getting it out to the market, uh, we've only been you know, live for about three months now. Eventually, we feel that this will be adopted as one of the proxies for for retail and institutional investors alike where they can they can participate and they can do their own calculation. Okay, we have so many pounds right now in, in mm-hmm. all categories. If they invest so many dollars, they have exposure to that many pounds, and that's mm-hmm. one way to look at it. So it's you know very yeah. arithmetic at that point. Well, you certainly do have uh, value in the ground, that's for sure. And, uh, you know, I've seen this work with a, with a gold company, too, that I followed in the past where they bought out-of-the-money projects, and then they uh, were one of the truly big winners uh, once the gold bull market started uh, taking place in the early 2000s, so uh, through the mid-2000s. So I have no doubt that uh, you're going to succeed with this. And, of course, the only question is how long do people need to sit with it? But, you know, when you're buying... When you're buying some value at such a low price, uh, you have to consider that. I mean, it, it certainly looks like one way to have some copper exposure uh, and, and not have to allocate too much of your portfolio right now when the copper price is, is suppressed. Uh, just a, a minute or so left here. Tell me a little bit about The Electrician uh, Drives a Porsche, My Electrician Drives a Porsche, your book. Uh, talk to us a little bit about yeah, that the- book. Yeah, the book is uh, is a tremendous success. It's already translated into German. Uh, we're going to be putting the book into um, into Mandarin. Uh, I have a, a a speaking bureau that represents me for for public speaking engagements. All these things, uh, you know, collateral. You get the collective benefit to Copper Bank because that is the only company I'm working with. And so when I'm when I'm working with my book, it um, they work together. Now, in a nutshell, the book is about a younger electrician who enlightens his family doctor how the world has changed technologically and demographically. And of course, as, uh, as he's surprised with this younger electrician who has the, sort of the, the wherewithal to have sort of figured this out, that everything you know, up here is either grown or mined. And of course, they're, the emerging markets, they're not going to stop. So slowly, mm-hmm. the doctor becomes a savvy, contrarian investor, and they eventually take a train ride across China, his first international trip, and he himself becomes this enlightened you know, participant in the longest trend in history, and in particular this uh, emerging market trend, which I don't think is going to stop for another sort of 20 or 30 years. And the book um, is doing very well, so people can pick it up on Amazon. Just uh, look it up. My electrician drives a Porsche, yeah. and um, I'm more, more than certain they'll be delighted, and perhaps they'll see me at a major conference in the near future. I'm more than happy to speak to anyone and they can look me up uh, on my travel schedule on my own personal website. Yeah, and again, your website, uh, the, web, the company website is, uh, give that to us again. Copperbankcorp.com, 
the symbol on the Canadian Stock Exchange is CBK, Charlie Bravo Kilo, and we will have an OTC uh, cross-listing imminently. That should be, you know, days away. So, well, uh, I would expect, you know, if if some people listening to this show go out and buy the stock, that we will have a gray market symbol and uh, we can buy it. I looked to uh, to purchase some shares down here and, and didn't see a symbol yet, but it's certainly something that I intend to do. So, anything else you'd like to mention before we conclude our discussion today? No, that's great. No, that's great, Jal. We'll probably be talking in the near future. And yeah, I, I hope so. Um, to meet up with you at a conference, probably at the PDAC or something, perhaps. Yeah, I'll be there. I'll be there in uh, in full color. And uh, you know, one final note is that uh, this, this is the only company I work with. So people, not only are we aligned with shareholders, not only we finance this company, not only have we built this company for ourselves in a market that is seemingly broken. Uh, people know where the value creation is, uh, but. Also, we have a razor sharp focus. This, this is our company. Uh, we built it, and we are gonna, we're gonna, we're gonna see this through. And we are hedged now. If the proper market booms, we have assets. If it continues to fail and, and be weak, we're able to buy more assets. And we, we have the strength and the ability to finance. Well, that's, uh, it's a great story. Thank you very much, Gianni, for being with me today, and look forward to talking to you again sometime in the not too distant future. Thanks so kindly, Jay. Okay, folks. Well, that's, we do have to go to a commercial break, but don't go away. You just heard Gianni say that the, uh, emerging, the emerging markets are not going to stop. We're going to talk to Stephen Harner, uh, who writes for Forbes and uh, manages money in that part of the world. We're going to get his view of uh, that emerging market in China and what he has to say about the geopolitics of Asia. So don't go away. We'll be right back with Stephen Harner. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Investors deserve to start seeing greater returns, period. Creating shareholder value requires vision and a disciplined, fiscally responsible style. At Dynacor Gold Mines, we are proving how to fuel growth without shareholder dilution. Cash flow and liquidity levels are as robust as the company has seen throughout its history. Dynacor is a low-risk public company generating actual profits coupled with real shareholder value. Learn more at DynacorGold.com or follow us on Twitter at DynacorGold. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times and the Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really happy to have with me once again Stephen Harner, 
Stephen is the president of Yangtze Century Limited. Uh, it's uh, in Shanghai, uh, formerly Harner and Company. Uh, it's a prince, uh, he's been a principal with uh, 30 years of experience, and he provides investment advisory management consulting services in China and Japan, specializing in M&A due diligence and risk management advisory as well as business development advisory in Japan and China uh, for financial services companies. And uh, he is, uh, also does some writing, uh, some, writes some very interesting, provides his interesting and I think very informative insights uh, in Forbes and other places where he, where he writes uh, fairly frequently. So I'm really pleased to have Stephen uh, with me again. Thanks for joining me today, Stephen. Delighted, Jay. Thank you very much. It's really interesting. And we were talking just before uh, we went live here on Mike. Uh, we, we were talking, you were talking about the geopolitics uh, of the Obama administration or the, uh, the security uh, position of the, of the Obama, the defense position of the Obama administration with respect to Asia. We've heard a lot about uh, the pivoting to Asia and the Trans-Pacific uh, Partnership uh, as Obama's uh, way of trying to, I guess, maintain uh, the presence of the United States and the dominance of the United States in Asia. Uh, how are the uh, how are the how are the Chinese uh, taking to that notion of, of a dominant United States in Asia? Right, uh, it is the the main issue really in Asian geopolitics is. Uh, you might call it, you could say it's China-U.S. relations, but it's really the, the maintaining, I mean, the United States uh, strategy of maintaining dominance, a really hegemonic uh, uh, military power in East Asia at a time when China, uh, for sort of legitimate and completely understandable reasons, uh, finds this, uh, this, this order and this system uh, really fundamentally kind of threatening to their, uh, to their sort of reemergence, their rise, uh, their, which, which so far has been, and I am very confident will continue to be a peaceful rise, but it's taking place at a time when, the, when U.S. military power, U.S. military alliances uh, are the order uh, and, and really a hegemonic uh, uh, position of power is the is an order in Asia, which simply is out of sync. It really is out of uh, uh, it's just out of uh, it's dysfunctional really in the new Asian power and uh, might say sort of geopolitical environment now and certainly going forward too. Mm-hmm. Well, certainly one, one interesting one interesting development uh, last uh, week or so has been. Uh, Obama, uh, the Obama administration, Susan B. Rice, the National Security Advisor, uh, outlining the brand new 2015 Obama National Security Strategy. What we see in that is just more of the same. I mean, there's absolutely no uh, change really in the U.S. Uh, strategy, which is to maintain again the uh, hegemonic uh, uh, military uh, position, the, which which are but the infrastructure of which is the alliance system. Japan is, uh, as, as you, the administration is always uh, happy to say, uh, the cornerstone of that system. But then what about China? What about U.S.-Japan, uh, U.S.-China relations, and how, again, as you suggested, does China see this? It, part of 
when Susan Rice was speaking, one thing, one announcement she made was that Xi Jinping, the president of China, uh, a man whose power now, whose uh, control, you might say, whose legitimacy in the system, is uh, unparalleled probably in the last 30 years, at least 20 years since Deng Xiaoping. Mm-hmm. Xi Jinping is more in charge and has more uh, credibility, more legitimacy, more authority, and particularly, I would say, moral authority in China than any leader in the, in the past 20 years. Mm. Uh, it, it has been invited to make a state visit to the United States in, uh, it turns out it's going to be in September. Uh, in the same speech, in the same sentence, uh, Susan Rice uh, said that Abe, Prime Minister Abe of Japan would also uh, be uh, visiting the United States on a state visit. Uh, that will be in May. But it's interesting, wow. uh, but the Abe visit really is reciprocal. It's, a re- it's, a, it's, a, it's reciprocal to the, the, the state visit status that, that the Japanese gave to uh, President Obama last November as an inducement, really, for him to spend any time in Japan. I mean, in fact, uh, it is true that Japan and the U.S.-Japan alliance is the sort of the linchpin, the cornerstone of uh, the U.S. Uh, sort of military uh, sort of, uh, power in, in Asia. Uh, the Seventh Fleet is headquartered in Japan. Uh, we have bases all over Japan. Uh, we have 50,000 uh, military active duty troops in Japan, Air Force, Navy, and a little bit of Army mm-hmm. and Marines. So Japan is, is, is the link. But, uh, in fact, U.S.-Japan relations basically are run by the Pentagon. I can say that. <laughs> yeah. The, 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 the political relationship is always a bit... Uh, it's been unequal since it began in the, after the war, the Second World War. And really, since really for the first, for the entire post-war period, and no change really when, when during the Obama administration, it's been the Pentagon that has been running the uh, Asia policy in general, but mainly, but particularly with respect to Japan, because that's where our major uh, military uh, power is located in Asia. But so the Japan-U.S. relationship really is all about the alliance. Uh, which is, again, all about the pivot. The China's perspective on that is that neither of these is really the kind of order they would like to see in Asia. They would like to see, essentially, an an order in Asia that lets Asians, and obviously China as the largest and most important power in Asia, sort of run their own affairs. I mean, think of post-World War order where the United States is supposed to thinks it's appropriate the United States makes the rules, rather they think that the Asians should make their own rules for their own uh, region and for their own people. Uh, I happen to, be, to agree with that, mm-hmm. uh, but it's, it is completely counter to the prevailing and, you know, I'd say, the, the establishment position in Washington. Now, mm-hmm. the, the invitation to Xi uh, for a state visit is extremely interesting, uh, this will be his first state visit to the United States, the uh, first visit since he became a president. But the question really is why? Why a state visit? Why a visit? Uh, I think why a state visit is because China has 
there are so many reasons why China should be reluctant to make that visit. What should have to visit the United States, or Xi Jinping, should be really a bit reluctant to uh, accept an invitation unless it were, in a sense, sweetened by the highest possible status of the visit, which in most cases includes a, an address to the Congress. I don't know whether that will happen in this, this case. Mm-hmm. Uh, the state visit, because the, the pivot policy and U.S. Uh, strategic military policy uh, since, and really particularly during the, the uh, Obama administration, from at least 2010, when Hillary Clinton was Secretary of State and announced uh, in Asia this this uh, policy that this sort of a pro or the stance that the United States would consider any uh, you know, consider South the South China Sea, for example, not just the East China Sea with the China with China Japan dispute, the South China Sea, where there are many disputing countries, including China, considers that a region, an area, a, a dispute that the United States uh, should arbitrate or should basically decide. Hmm. Uh, that has been fundamentally uh, opposed by China for very good reasons, one of which I would say is that it really makes no difference or should make no difference to the United States uh, whether islands in the South China Sea are claimed or otherwise occupied by China or the Philippines or Vietnam. Mm -hmm. Uh, It has nothing to do with American national interests. It's really just, as the Chinese would suggest, meddling and really this this, this desire to run things, run matters in Asia. And it's Mm -hmm. counterproductive. What it Mm -hmm. has done is embolden countries like the Philippines, like Malaysia or, or Vietnam, to not negotiate, simply to fall back on a, on a presumed U.S. backing, including a U.S. threat. In the Philippines' case, we still have an, a, an alliance, a military alliance with that country, dating from 1951, during the Cold War and during even the Korean War period, where it makes, it makes no sense, but it gives the Philippines, the, the, Philippines the, the opportunity to, in a sense, threaten or, or, or to, uh, you know, to, to uh, presume that they would be backed up by uh, U.S. military power in a, in a confrontation with China. In fact, that's what Hillary Clinton, during her period of Secretary of State, said many times, uh, many times that, she would, that the United States would essentially stand with the Philippines against China mm. on... Uh, disputes uh, for you know, sovereign territory or for uh, basically territorial rights in in the South China Sea. It's an extremely unproductive uh, position if 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 the if the objective is to get some sort of resolution, some sort of modus vivendi between uh, China and those countries in respect to their their territorial disputes. Yeah. What I, what I would suggest is the very interesting thing is that China, in a sense, has over the past year come up, essentially evolved a new approach, which is almost, it's being called its own pivot to Asia. Uh-huh. China, uh, in the last uh, six months, has, 
held many uh, several conferences, uh, many of them with Xi Jinping in the, in the president and, and in the leadership role and making sort of important pronouncements, suggesting that China really uh, is giving up. You might say it is almost given up with the United States, certainly with the Obama administration at this stage, trying to come up with a what they would their plan, their concept during the last four or five years has been something called a, a new style of great power relations, a more equal relationship, not involving alliances, not involving uh, you know, the sort of the, course, the, the post-war order, but one that has mutual respect, mutual uh, non-confrontation, non, uh, non-conflict, uh, where in a sense they share, uh, well, share power, you might say. Sure, in fact, sure. I think it gives uh, China a bit more latitude. But having failed, the, administra- the Obama administration has essentially rejected that. It's, yeah. As it explicitly rejected the Chinese approach. And they themselves have now turned around and come up with their own kind of Asian pivot, saying that their most important relationships will no longer be, it's no longer the United States, rather it's their neighboring Asian countries, including countries in Central Asia, South Asia, and all the way over to Africa. Okay, Stephen, unfortunately, my engineer is telling me we're out of time, and we didn't allow enough time, so I want to have you back sometime in the near future. There's so much more I want to ask you. Chinese-Russian relationships, how that factors in. So much more to talk to you about. There's, oh, I don't know where to start. Uh, you, you've really just sort of, uh, sort of, uh, sort of stimulated my imagination to questions that I have for you. So I'm hoping that you can come back with me sometime in the near future. We're out of time now. Uh, can we do that? Sure. No problem. Uh, so much, uh, Stephen. Thank you so much. I'm sorry to cut you off, but we are out of time. The clock seems to rule the day. So thank you very much. Well, folks, uh, next week we're going to have Jeff Deist of the Mises Institute with us and Michael Oliver, hopefully back, and Chen Lin, who should have his own views on uh, what's going on in China, Beijing, and elsewhere in that part of the world. Uh, so please join me again next week. I want to thank Tacey Trump, my producer, Matt Widener, my engineer, all of you for listening. Until next week, goodbye and God's blessings to you. Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Novo Resources Corporation, trading symbols NSRPF on the OTCQX and NVO on the Canadian Securities Exchange, is an advanced junior mining exploration company whose highly prospective assets are located in the Hammersley Basin of Western Australia. Novo's flagship asset, its Beaton's Creek Project, has an NI43101 compliant resource of 420,000 ounces at a grade of 1.5 grams per ton. With $10 million in cash and strong shareholder support from Newmont Mining, Novo looks to complete a feasibility study in the first quarter of 2015. Investors deserve to start seeing greater returns, period. Creating shareholder value requires vision and a disciplined, fiscally responsible style. At Dynacor Gold Mines, we are proving how to fuel growth without shareholder dilution. Cash flow and liquidity levels are as robust as the company has seen throughout its history. Dynacor is a low-risk public company generating actual profits coupled with real shareholder value. Learn more at DynacorGold.com or follow us on Twitter at Dynacor Gold. 